On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Main standing, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 3 as our students are being dismissed. Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 14 through 21, the section we've been uh, looking at for a few weeks. So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, beginning now in verse 14, where we read, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, this morning we'll be looking at verses 17b through 19a. And in these verses, uh, we see that Paul mentions the word love two times, but he doesn't give any definition. But it's as if the church in Ephesus had heard many sermons on this theme from the Apostle Paul and and had experienced Christian love up close as Paul uh, fleshed it out before them in his daily life, so he didn't need to explain it. Rather, he prayed for them. He prayed that being rooted and grounded in love, they would be able to comprehend the vastness of the love of Christ and that they might know it, uh, that is, experience it in their lives in a much greater measure. Since we're going to be talking about love, I think that we we should take a moment uh, and begin by understanding what this word means. The Greek language utilizes uh, different words for the different types of love. The Greek word eros is used for sexual love, and this word is never found in the New Testament. The Greek word phileo is used for brotherly love or affection, the the affection that exists between close friends. We see that used in places like John 15, 19, Romans 12, 10, and Hebrews 13, 1. Then there's the Greek word storge. It's used for family or or tribal love, that that natural love that exists between family members. And storge is only found in the New Testament as a negative word, meaning without natural love. But the word love that Paul uses here uh, is the Greek word agape. Agape is the highest form of love. Agape is almost always used to describe the love that is 
is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. I mean, God is love, the scriptures say. I mean, God does not merely love, he is love, that is his nature, and everything God does flows from his love. Biblical agape, uh, the, the love that characterizes God is a matter of the will and not a matter of feeling or emotion, though deep feelings and emotions almost always accompany love. But agape is an attitude of selflessness. It leaves absolutely no place for pride, vanity, arrogance, self-seeking, or self-glory. It is a selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love. A love that impels one to sacrifice oneself for the highest good of the object love, regardless of response and regardless of the cost, even to the point of being willing to lay down one's life for another. And so it's not a feeling, it is an attitude and an action. It's an act of choice that we're commanded to exercise. Agape love is a love that acts. It is always shown by what it does. For example, God's loving the world was not a matter of simply feeling. Rather, it resulted in his sending his only son to redeem the world. And so God's demonstration of agape love led to the sacrifice of his son for for those he loves. And agape is selfless giving. It is always selfless and it is always giving. I mean, it's the very nature and substance of this love to deny self and to give to others. I mean, Jesus did not say greater love has no one than to have warm feelings for his friends. It's not what he said. But rather, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In obeying the Father's loving will to redeem the world, Jesus willingly and lovingly gave himself to accomplish that redemption. As Paul said in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is love in its most perfect form. And it's this divine attitude of self-sacrificing love that every believer is to have in himself. This is the love that we are called to. Agape love is the kind of love we're to have for God in fulfillment of the greatest commandment. And what is that? That, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, with all your being. It's also the love that we're to have for others, whether they're fellow believers or even our enemies, according to Matthew 5. The Christian life is to be marked by agape love. This, Jesus said, is what would set us apart from the world. He said the world would know that we are his disciples, not by uh, our knowledge, not by our correct theology, and we should have both of those, but he said the world would know that we were his disciples by our love one for another. But this kind of love is not in our human nature, is it? It's not naturally in us to forget ourselves so completely and to love one another so as to do anything and everything that is necessary to meet one another's needs. It is not naturally in us to do for others what Jesus Christ did for us. That that is not how we are by nature. 
And the only way that we can ever begin to love one another as we are, are here called to do, or as we're called to do in Scripture, is when by grace through faith we're born again, we come to believe the gospel, receive a new nature, and the, and the love of God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then and only then can we begin to love in this way. I mean, apart from the transforming power of God, it's not going to happen. But when we come into a saving relationship with Christ, we're given a new capacity to love, and, and we will begin to demonstrate that love toward others. I mean, John said in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And then he said, whoever does not love abides in death. And then in 1 John 4.12, the second part of that verse, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The fruit of the Spirit. That is, the evidence of the Spirit's presence in our lives, which is the evidence of transformation and regeneration and conversion, is love. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And the way that that's written, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all essentially different facets of love. So agape love is the true evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ. But if there's no love for one another as it's presented to us in Scripture, I mean, that is not only an egregious sin. It very well may be an indication of a lack of genuine spiritual life. John said in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then in 1 John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, the one who agapes his brother. You see, the true believer is going to have a desire to demonstrate his love for the Lord Jesus, his love for his brother, and to prove his love personally by being loyal and faithful. And so when the Spirit empowers our lives, and Christ is obeyed, we find ourselves wanting to serve others, wanting to sacrifice for them and serve them because Christ's loving nature has truly become our own. I mean, loving is the supernatural attitude of the Christian because love is the nature of Christ. Loving others is an act of the will and obedience to Christ. And not loving them is an act of disobedience. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, agape his brother. And I guess we could say in the, in the deepest sense, love is really the, the only commandment of God. Because again, the, the greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second greatest is to love your neighbor as, as yourself. 
For the one who loves another, Paul said in Romans 13, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. See, as one man said, the absence of love is the presence of sin. The absence of love has nothing at all to do with what is happening to us, but everything to do with what is happening in us. Sin and love are are enemies because sin and God are enemies, and they cannot coexist. Where one is, the other is not. And the loveless life is the ungodly life, and the godly life is the serving, caring, tender-hearted, affectionate, self-giving, self-sacrificing life of Christ's love working in and through the believer. And so, right off the bat, this begs the question, is this serving, caring, tender-hearted, affectionate, self-giving, self-sacrificing love a reality in your life and mine? I mean, do we even take seriously the fact that the New Testament insists that the presence of this love gives evidence of the reality of our Christian profession? And that the lack of love, the lack of this love and its its practice or self-denying, self-giving, sacrificial service to God and His people is a sure indication that we are still in darkness and do not have the life of God within us. And so if we are strangers to this love, we must be strangers to the God who is love. Because the primary evidence that Christ truly is dwelling in our hearts by his spirit is the presence and the overflow of love in our lives, first to God and then to his people. Love for God and love for one another are the distinguishing marks of an authentic Christian and an authentic church. And in this passage, Paul wants his readers and us to grasp the infinite love of Christ and in all of its fullness and to experience in our lives and in a much greater measure. And so the apostle now prays, not for the Ephesians' love for Christ and others, though that's certainly a good thing to pray for, but rather... In our passage, he is praying that the Ephesians may know Christ's love for them. And why is this vitally important? Because as we begin to grasp more and more Christ's immense love for us, the more we're going to love him, and then the more we're going to demonstrate that love to one another. You'll remember that we're right in the middle of this second prayer of Paul's for the Ephesians. And it began with Paul getting down on his knees, bowing before God the Father, praying for people he loved. And his first request was that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant that his readers may be strengthened with spiritual power through his spirit in their inner being or the inner person. And he did so because this is where we need strength and power on the inside, because this is where it starts. The inner man is the issue, and that was Paul's focus. 
And only the Holy Spirit can strengthen us in our inner being. He, he is the one who enables and empowers us. And the aim of the Holy Spirit strengthening us with power in the inner man is so that Christ may dwell in our hearts. That is, that he might be at home. In other words, that he might be at the very center of our lives. In other words, as we learned last week, Paul was praying that as Christ settles into our hearts through the Spirit, He might exert an ever-increasing and progressively more powerful influence in every part of our hearts and lives so that Christ becomes the dominating factor in our attitudes and our conduct. That's what he was praying for his readers and for us today. That there would be more and more of the indwelling Christ to know and enjoy, and really less and less of us. But what is that going to look like to have more of the indwelling Christ in your life? Suppose you give yourself to praying this prayer every day with passion and longing and faith in Jesus. You know, suppose you begin to pray, Oh God, strengthen me with power through the Holy Spirit in my inner being that Christ might dwell in my heart through faith. What will it mean for God to begin to answer such a prayer? Well, the Apostle Paul explains this deeper knowledge and experience of the indwelling Christ entirely in terms of love. And you see that in the text. He says, I want Christ to dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see, to have more of the indwelling Christ in your life means to know and to experience, to taste and and enjoy more of His infinite love. And this is Paul's second request. So let's look now at the second half of verse 17, where Paul begins with this statement. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love. That phrase, rooted and grounded in love, is is constructed in such a way that it's not clear how best to understand what Paul is saying. And commentators and scholars are divided about the best way to read the passage. In the original Greek, the statement is sort of a standalone statement. So it's not clear whether it belongs to what's gone before or what comes after. In our English Standard versions that we use as our church Bible, read it as belonging to the larger request immediately following this phrase that the Ephesians might grasp the love of Christ. You see that in verse 17 and 18? You know, Paul prays in our version that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. But the problem is that while that makes good sense and sounds like it reads well in in our English translation, those who are well-versed in the Greek tell us that this stretches the normal rules of Greek grammar just a little too far. And so it seems that it is, it is better to understand it as a standalone statement. In other words, it's, it's a sort of reminder to the Ephesians. And actually, it's a bit like the reminder we see at the end of verse 5 in chapter 2, where, where right in the middle of his flow of thought about you know, salvation, Paul bursts out with, re, with a reminder to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved. 
Well, here in, in, in chapter 3, verse 17, between asking that God strengthen them with power through His Spirit and their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, and asking in verse 18 that they also have strength to comprehend and experience the love of Christ, Paul interrupts the flow to remind them that you're rooted and grounded in love. And this rooting and grounding in love was something God had already accomplished for the Ephesians and for all believers. It was not something they did. Rather, it was done to them. It was accomplished by God himself at salvation when the love of God, not not the love of believers for God, but God's love for us was lavishly poured into our hearts. And this love then provides the basis and motivating strength that enables Christians to love others, which is a focus later in this letter in chapter 4, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 2. And so with this statement, Paul reminds the Ephesians that they are rooted and grounded in God's love. And in doing so, he uses a double metaphor, one from agriculture and one from architecture. The first metaphor from agriculture compares the believer to a tree rooted in the rich soil of God's love. And to be rooted in love picture is not a, you know, don't picture a, a sapling or, you know, one of those little uh, bare root trees that you get at Home Depot that blows over as soon as any little bit of wind comes along. But rather picture here a, a big oak tree. You know, a sturdy growing tree that sinks down roots that enable it to withstand drought and and fierce storms. You see, to be a Christian is to be rooted in the love of Christ so that whenever the storms begin to batter and, and pound your soul, whether they're storms of suffering and sickness or storms of sorrow, grief and loss, storms of, of spiritual attack and shame, whatever the storms may be, when they hit you, you're rooted deeply, firmly, and securely being held by the love of God. The second metaphor from architecture compares the believer to a building that's grounded or being built on the foundation of God's love. Years ago, we lived in Texas for just a a short time. But in that short time we were there, we learned that because of the type of soil they have, there there are lots of houses that have very serious issues with the foundation. And it's a big problem. Because the soil shifts and moves, it it contracts and expands, and so you have to be very, very careful when purchasing a home to make sure that the foundation is solid. Well, to be grounded in love pictures a solid building with the foundation that goes down to the bedrock. And it can withstand a flood or, or an earthquake because it's built on the rock. I mean, our Christian life is is anchored on the, on the solid rock of God's love. It doesn't shift, and, and which doesn't shift or move beneath us. And so we are utterly secure as believers in Christ. Now perhaps some of us have only ever known the kind of human love that, that comes with strings attached, right? You know, it's on again, off again. It's manipulative, unstable, unfaithful, abusive, controlling, not really love at all. And as a result, it may well be that, that though at an intellectual level we believe and affirm that, that God loves us, there's still 
deep in our hearts a dread perhaps that one day God's love with, with regard to us may run out or, or fail or, or stop and he'll reject us. It's almost as if we picture God's love like it's, it's, it's going to dissolve and melt like ice before the sun. Paul's telling us here that that God does not love us in that way. No, his love never runs out. It never dissolves. It never melts away. His love is everlasting. It is unchanged and unchangeable like God himself. And the love of Christ for you is is not like the weather. It's constant and sure. And that's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are rooted and grounded in love. And this is an important reminder to us that to be a Christian is to have your roots sunk deeply and our foundation built well on the, on the rock, the solid rock, the bedrock of God's love. I mean, before anything else, Paul wants us to understand our security in God's love. Like a tree with roots, we're rooted in Christ's love and held secure. Like a house built on solid rock, though it's shaken by earthquakes and buffeted by storms, the house on the solid rock foundation of God's love is going to stand firm. As one man said, God's love is the soil in which our life must have its roots, and it is the rock upon which our faith must ever rest. We are rooted and grounded, held firm, safe and secure in the love of God. And so whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God in Christ. And this love is the fertile soil and the solid foundation of the believer's life. In Christ. And so Paul begins with this statement that, that you're rooted and grounded in love. And now he begins his actual request. And the main thrust of this request is for the Ephesians to grasp Christ's immense love toward them. And this petition consists of two interrelated requests. And the first is in verse 18. And it's that, notice verse 18, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So Paul asked God to give the Ephesians strength. This word means to have strength enough to be completely capable of doing or experiencing something. So to be be capable of, of doing what? Well, he says to comprehend, strength to comprehend. And this word comprehend means to grasp intellectually, to to get the meaning of something, to come to understand something which was not understood or perceived previously, but but it implies more than just a mere mental understanding. It it literally means to take hold, uh, to to eagerly take hold of something or or to seize something, to to take hold of something and make it one's own or or to hold it as one's own. And so he prays that his readers may be completely capable to come to grasp and and make their and and to just hold on to it as their own the 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 breadth and length and height and depth of what? Well, it doesn't say, but we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the love of Christ. 
know, God's love, the love of Christ. Breadth and length and height and depth, those four dimensions really describe for us the magnitude and the immensity of Christ's matchless love for his people. And the language reminds us of Psalm 103, verses 11 and 12, which also uses dimensional language. And there the psalmist said, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And Paul's point here is that Christ's love for us is so great and so divine that we'll never fully comprehend it. But he knows it's vital that we comprehend and take hold of something of the greatness of Christ's love. And and we can. We can. We can learn. We can comprehend more of his love by, by the measures of it that are given to us here in God's word. You say, well, how are we supposed to grasp the width of Christ's love? Well, I mean, one answer is provided by Paul in Ephesians 2 when he spoke of Christ bringing together Jews and Gentiles as one through the cross. The point is that now in Christ, every kind of person may come. That's the breadth of Christ's love. And when we see Christ's arms spread on the cross, we should see an open invitation for all men everywhere. And the same is true for every category of, 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 of person today, Jew, Gentile, slave and free, male, female, young and old, white and black and brown, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, church and unchurched, Christ's love is wide enough to embrace, embrace them all. I mean, Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, Now in Christ Jesus, you who, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that means that there's a place for you, whoever you are. You know, whatever your sins, there's a place for you in in the love of Jesus Christ. What about the length of Christ's love? Well, Christ loved us in eternity past when we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Christ's love extends into eternity future when we will be heirs together with Him in glory. And the length of Christ's love may be grasped in terms of the extent of our forgiveness. Again, as Psalm 103.12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As one man wrote, the length of the love of Christ is the length of eternity and outmeasures all human sin. But what about the height? of Christ's love. What about that? Well, we think of Jesus lifted up on the cross. I mean, Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And the height of Christ's love rises higher still up, up into heaven, raising sinners up, according to Ephesians 1, to dwell with Him in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. And this leaves then the depth of Christ's love. How are we to understand that? Well, in this way, there's no depth of sin so deep that it's beyond the saving reach of Christ's redeeming love. One man wrote, My sins are deep, my helpless miseries are deep, but they are shallow as compared with the love that goes down beneath all sin. How deep is the love of Christ? The depths of Christ's love go down beneath all human necessity, sorrow, suffering, and sin. 
One commentator shared a story telling how in the early 19th century, when Napoleon's army opened a prison that had been used by the Spanish Inquisition, they found the remains of a prisoner who had been incarcerated for his faith. The dungeon was underground. The body had long since decayed. I mean, only a chain fastened around the ankle ankle bone cried out his confinement. But this prisoner, he said, long since dead, had left the witness. On the wall of his small, dismal cell, this faithful follower of Christ had scratched a rough cross with four words surrounding it in Spanish. Above the cross was the Spanish word for height. Below it was the word for depth. To the left, the word for width. And to the right, the word for length. So clearly this prisoner wanted to testify to the surpassing greatness of a love of Christ perceived even in his suffering and dying. As one man said, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters. It is long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt them to heaven. And I want you to notice that Paul says we comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love for us together with who? What does it say? Together with all the saints. All the saints. So what is Paul telling us by that? Well, he's telling us that our comprehension and experience of Christ's love is personal, but it's not private. It's meant to be understood, felt, proclaimed, and enjoyed in the context of the body of Christ. It's a personal experience, yes, uh, yet, yet it's also an experience meant to be shared in the fellowship with all the family of God in the local church. God means for us to explore the measureless reaches of His love together. You see, God has designed things in such a way that those who love the corporate gathering of his people are in the best position to grasp the richness of his love. And this is one thing that makes public worship so very important. We can only come to a better, fuller understanding of his love in community. And it happens when we sit under the preaching of his word. It happens when we study it together and discuss it. It happens when we share our knowledge of God's love with each other. It happens when we observe it in our brothers and sisters. It it happens in our hearts as, as they're lifted up together in the worship of Him. We grow in our comprehension of Christ's love, seeing a fellow believer overcome a besetting sin or or grow stronger in faith or be sustained in a dark trial, which encourages us that Christ will do for us as He's done for that brother or sister. We also grow in our comprehension of Christ's great love when it's expressed to us through other believers. And quite often we grow in love when another believer demonstrates the love of Christ to us during a time of need. Sometimes we grow in Christ's love and we have to work through relational difficulties with another believer. And we better comprehend Christ's love by praying for others. And when you have poured out your heart for a sick or sorrowing family or child in the church, your heart is naturally drawn toward them and you experience Christ's love through them. 
But it's in the church as we live together as, as the flock of God that together, uh, that we together learned about the greatness of Christ's love for us. One man said it needs the whole church of God to understand the whole love of God. We were never meant to live the Christian life in isolation. It's absolutely contrary to everything the New Testament teaches. Because Christians are members together of Christ's body. I mean, Paul has already told us in Ephesians that we are living stones built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. I mean, this is one vital reason why all Christians should treasure the local church and commit themselves to its life, its worship, and service. I mean, we need one another. When one member suffers, all suffer. When one member rejoices, all rejoice. And too often, Christians today see the church and its fellowship like a watering hole. Just simply a place to be spiritually replenished, not as a family to love and cherish and belong to. And that, of course, indicates uh, spiritual pride and arrogance and a total lack of understanding of the Christian life and 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 God's plan and purpose for the church. But if we're members together of the body of Christ, then our growth in Christ is dependent on us belonging to and being faithfully committed to the life of the body. For as one man said, with all the saints is the default of the life of faith. Growth in grace and understanding and in love is impossible without it. You see, Paul knows that however sweet the love of Christ may be to you on your own as you open the word of God and as you seek him in prayer, as he showers his blessing upon you, Paul knows that it's, it's still much sweeter together. There's more of the love of Christ when we're together. More of the love of Christ when we're together than, than we can know when we're alone. It, it, it's something shared with all the saints. That is, all believers. So do you want to know more of of Jesus' love in your life? And put a priority, put a premium on being in the place uh, He has ordained and promised to meet you with a shower and shower His love upon you. You know, uh, one one of the old Puritans said something, I don't know if I can remember it exactly, but he said that, you know, each believer, uh, you know, experiences a, a, a stream of God's love. But yet, he said, when we gather together, all those streams come together. What you have then is a raging river of God's love being poured out upon us all. We need to put a premium on being in the place that he's ordained and promised to meet, meet us Uh, and and to shower us with his love. So we need to make sure that we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the great day approaching. Well, the great day is approaching. And yet so many are forsaking the assembling of ourselves, apparently not understanding the times in which we live. Loved ones, we can only come to a better, fuller understanding of his love in community. And so how important is it 
that on the Lord's day, you're in the place where Christ has ordained to shower His love upon His people. I mean, the love of Christ is secure, but the love of Christ is known corporately together. And so Paul's request is for the Ephesians to grasp Christ's immense love toward them. And as I said, the petition consists of two interrelated requests. The first in verse 18, which we just looked at, is that his readers may be able to understand what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. And now the second is in the first part of verse 19. And the second request is that they will be able, look at verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And remember, he's speaking to believers, so we're not talking about knowing in the sense of coming to faith in Christ. No, this is something far beyond that. And it's a paradox, isn't it? Paul prays that the Ephesians would know something that surpasses or is beyond knowledge. He wants them to know something that's beyond knowing. I mean, obviously, you cannot personally know what is beyond knowledge. However, you can experience it. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. This knowing is not just in the intellect, but in the heart. He, he wants them to know the love of Christ in their own experience. He wants them to know it more and more in their lives. And the love of God in Christ is not merely a truth Christians believe and confess. It's a truth that we're to experience. a truth that we're to live. I mean, for example, there's a world of difference in believing that marriage is a good thing and actually being married, right? Big difference. One is simply knowing. The other is knowing and experiencing. So what Paul has in mind is a knowledge of personal experience and participation. Spurgeon writes, an ungodly man may know something about Christ's love. He may believe in the fact of it. He may perceive something of the theory of it. But to know the love itself, to taste its sweets, to realize personally, experimentally, and vitally the love of Christ that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost is the privilege of the child of God and of the child of God alone. And the world can't comprehend the love of Christ because it can't understand Christ. But every believer can know something of Christ's great love. But yet, in another sense, we can never know it fully, completely, because it's beyond our knowing. And His love for us is too great uh, ever to be fully known. The love of Christ is an ocean with no shoreline and no bottom. It's a landscape that fills our every horizon. It has no boundaries where we may ever step out beyond the love of Christ. A prisoner, his name unknown, once wrote of God's love. This is what he wrote. You'll recognize it from a hymn. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made? With every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. 
No matter how much we learn, no matter how much we come to know deeply, increasingly, blessedly, there is always an infinity left over. An infinity. I mean, picture yourself having finished your earthly race. You're you're dwelling in glory face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing Him in all of His beauty and majesty and and splendor and, and glory. And for millennia, for millennia in His presence, you'll still discover new glories in the love of Christ. You'll never reach the bottom, the depths. You'll never get to the edges or the ends of the love of Christ. You may know it truly, but you may not know it completely because it surpasses knowledge. You will never, never cease to discover fresh glories and beauties and wonders in the love of Christ. And so no matter how much we know of the love of Christ, no matter how fully we enter into His love for us, we will never come to the place of saying that we know all that there is to know of Christ's great love for us, because Paul tells us right here, it is beyond knowing. So what a ridiculous thing it is for someone to say, well, yeah, the love of God, yeah, I know all about that. I read all about that. I did a Bible study on that one summer. I mean, throughout eternity, there will always be more to know and experience. We can never get to the end of such immense, glorious love. So we need to ask ourselves, am I growing more and more in knowing this unknowable love of Christ? I mean, do I know His love experientially more today than than I did a year ago? Loved ones, this is so important because this, this is supposed to be our lifelong occupation. I mean, this is for the health of our souls. And have we seriously devoted time to thinking about and, and trying to understand His love? You know, have we contemplated His love in, say, the Incarnation, the cross? Great passages such as uh, this one, which extol His love? I mean, if not, we've, we've failed in our duty. Well, how do we as believers come to know His love experientially? Well, one way believers come to know more of Christ's love is through the study of Scripture. I mean, the children's song is exactly right. Jesus loves me, this I sow, for the Bible tells me so. Right? Christ's love is the most important thing for us to learn in God's Word. Everything that Jesus did in this world was to show His love to you. I mean, saving you and at such a great cost to Himself. Therefore, we should pray that our study of Scripture, in our study of Scripture, we might know and experience the love of Christ for sinners who believe. Second, we learn of Christ's love as we live in obedience to Him. Jesus said in John 15, verses 9 and 10, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
As one commentator noted, Obedience is necessary to a life of Christian blessing and to any depth of knowledge of Christ's love for you. It is disciples who follow Christ and take up their cross who know His love. It is as you strive against sin that you feel His loving strength. It is, it is as you give to others in service that you feel more powerfully His love for you. When you trust Christ for your financial stewardship, you find that what He provides is better than what you could have hoarded. It is as you shine His light into the world, witnessing and living for Jesus, that the truth of His gospel shines with, a divine, with divine love in your own heart. Third, we come to know more of Christ's love in the trials and suffering of life. I mean, he understands what we're going through. I mean, talk about trials and suffering. And he was hated, despised, reviled, rejected, betrayed by close friends, sorrowed in the cross, uh, or sorrowed in the loss of those he loved, faced the agony and, and of suffering and death on the cross. And he did all of this out of love for us, so we might face our similar trials as more than conquerors through him who loved us. Forth in sorrow, fear, and need, we learn more about Christ's love for us. In those times, God uh, brings us to a place where the only person who can relate to our pain is Jesus, and He comforts us. And fifth, as was already mentioned, Paul writes that it's together with all the saints that we comprehend the magnitude of Christ's love for us. It's in the church as we live together as the flock of God that we together learn about the greatness of Christ's love for us. And why is it so important for us to know Christ's love? Well, the answer is that it's only as we rely on the love of Christ that we have confidence to draw near to God and receive from Him the blessings that are necessary to live the life of faith. The only Christians who become spiritually mature, fruitful, and strong are those who can say with the Apostle John that we have come to know and to believe or we have come to know and to rely upon the love that God has for us. This means that those who have never believed need to see Christ's great love and to repent and turn to Him in faith for salvation. But Paul's point in this passage is for believers to comprehend and to know God's love because this is our supreme need. Because knowing Christ's love is the key to sanctification, that lifelong process of growing in godliness and grace. John writes, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because He first loved us. And therefore, knowing Christ's love causes our hearts to grow into maturity. God's love makes us want to read the Bible, which feeds us. God's God's love makes us want to worship Him in church, which strengthens our souls. I mean, it's love that draws us near to Him in prayer and, and inspires us to serve in His name and causes us to seek the salvation of the lost around us. It's all because of the love of Christ. So Paul's second prayer request for the Ephesian is that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
So this begs the question, do you know the love of Christ? Do you know the love of Christ? I'm not asking if you know a lot of religious things, a lot of theological things. I'm asking, do you know the love of Christ? Because according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, you can know all things. You can have all knowledge. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. And, that, and the way that's written means you're, you're less than nothing. You're less than a zero. Do you know the love of Christ? And however far you may have wandered away from him, backslidden Christian, lukewarm Christian, the the love of Christ is wide enough to find you, to bring you home like a prodigal to, to a joyous, loving welcome. And however far you may still have to climb, weary Christian, on this, on this long uphill journey of the Christian life. Christ's love is high enough to lead you all the way to the heavenly summit. All the way to that heavenly shore. As the words of the hymn say, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Christ's love for you is secure. You can trust it and you can trust yourself to it. And the love of Christ is best known, known most fully this side of heaven through the Bible in a life of obedience amidst trials and sorrows and together with all the saints. Christ's love will give you a future and a hope with strength, peace, and joy in the Lord that no one can ab- no, that absolutely no one can take away. It is a limitless, glorious love. And so however far you, you may yet have traveled in the Christian life, however mature, however much you may know of Christ your Savior, there is much, 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 much more to know in the glories of His love. In love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And Paul's third request is that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. But we will get to that next time, Lord willing. This is enough to digest. Maybe it's not for you, but it is for me. Let's stand. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. 
Again, 530-547-4400 or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org, calvarybiblepc.org. Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love.